Buongiorno and welcome to the Global Podcast, where we keep you up to date on the latest trends and insights on diplomacy in international development. I'm your host, Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tecum Global Consultancy, based here in London, which produces this series. In this podcast, I sit down with thought leaders, diplomats, and experts on the field, as well as provide analysis from our own team at Pax to talk more about the need for diplomacy in international development in order to foster political will around greater social impact and good. So grab your headphones and let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Global Podcast. We've known it's been a bit of a pause since we last spoke and you last heard from us, but we're excited to actually present to you a brand new series that we're introducing. The focus will be around China. What is China's role in the international world and particularly when it comes to diplomacy and diplomacy for sustainable development? With all that is happening between the notorious division with the United States and China, China's role in development and the persistent misunderstanding that is happening around this country. We're looking to shed a little bit of light to help foster greater understanding as we always try to endeavor with the global podcast, but also give you some more insight in how you can better understand China and better operate and work with it, whether within diplomacy or sustainable development. For our first episode, we felt that it was quite appropriate to actually bring in one of our own team members to be able to speak a little bit more about this particular episode, which is very foundational, simply being understanding China, helping you understand its intentions based upon its history and culture to really appreciate how you can work with the country. Joining us is Su Yun Wu, who is a postdoctoral researcher from Singapore, working at the Institute of Political Science at the University of Zurich. Su is also a consultant with Pax Tech and Global, specifically on Chinese politics. Her main research focus is on local citizen participation in China, and her PhD dissertation examined the phenomenon of deliberative democracy with Chinese characteristics with a comparative quality study of a participatory budgeting of the two Chinese localities, Chengdu and Wengling. She is now currently involved in a short-term project examining Chinese influence in European research and higher education as a visiting fellow at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. So, Sue, welcome to the Global Podcast. We haven't had you until now. Hello, Lisa. I'm very happy to be here and to be discussing such a relevant and necessary topic. Perfect. Well, very necessary, and this is why we're coming with this series. And of course, who better than to have you? Of course, you you also work with us at Pax Tech and Global, and your expertise is is is, is exceptional. And we want everybody to really get to experience that. So, given that this is such an important topic, and and it's mainly due to the fact of lack of understanding, I think the most important key question I can ask you is. What is, what is the world, and particularly the Western world, getting wrong when it comes to its perception of China? Oh, you're starting with a very broad and difficult question. So let me see if I can try to give my two cents worth. So I think that right now, probably the major misconception about China is to look at it from a very one-dimensional view and to not really understand how the domestic politics actually impact 
upon the foreign policy. So I think a lot of the complexities and the intricacies of um, Chinese policy making has not really been properly understood um, by a lot of the people, even the policymakers, um, I would dare say, in the West. Precisely, and notoriously as well with the United States and with many countries as well who are starting to consistently uh, claim that China is trying to take over the new um, role as a superpower. And of course, the facts are indicating that, that China does have the economic capacity to supersede the United States by at least 2050. But you're right, it wasn't a fair question to bring that out because there's so much that one can say in regards to not only how the world is misunderstanding China, and particularly the Western world, but even particular countries. But maybe let's go back to the real basics. Let's really look at China and really try to unthread it. China, of course, is is a global superpower. It is a voice to be reckoned with. And I think one of the key things that we should have our audience understand is China as a global player, what is its real true global intentions, particularly when it comes to its role within diplomacy? So I think that China's global intentions can really be seen through the historical lens of how it perceived is sort of a new status given its amazing economic development that has happened since reform and opening up. So there's a sense, if you look at what the Chinese um, president, Xi Jinping, has been trying to articulate in terms of this theme of national rejuvenation, I think it says a lot about China's new global ambitions, China's new confidence in what they call this new era of foreign policy. So what this really means is they see themselves as um, increasingly an important player on the global stage. Uh, at the same time, what many scholars have also noticed is this very, very prominent shift from keeping a low profile, which is something that the former Premier Deng Xiaoping has advocated, to this new assertiveness, these new ambitions with, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative and a lot of the other involvements um, on the global stage with multilateralism and even with like fighting environmental um, degradation. So I think what we have is a very interesting sort of interpretation of what kind of role they perceive themselves to be occupying right now and what they would like to be, which is really to stand as like an equal partner in a multipolar world with the US. Interesting when you indicate that the fact that China is looking to be an equal partner, particularly with the United States, and 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 I think that's there's something about that mentioning that probably should be linked as well to its history, because I do understand that China's past and its history seems to be playing a particularly critical role in how it's really navigating within the world and how it it views itself and how, how it's engaging with its partners, whether through its, its endeavors, such as One Belt Road and whatnot, which our subsequent episodes will discuss. Can you give a little bit of an explanation to help the audience understand, particularly about facets of China's history that are quite important to take in consideration in regards to how, it's, how it is actually operating and, and managing itself diplomatically and engaging in the global, global, global audience? This is interesting because I think a lot of uh, historians or scholars with historical view have been discussing and debating that. So that's often the baseline where they look at this narrative of 
being the victim due to what is called the century of humiliation, where China was really carved up like a watermelon by the Western imperial powers in the 1800s. And that historical memory has been considered to shape sort of the national psyche of China. And in light of where China is today, given its achievements and given the fact that you know it has been a more and more powerful play on the global stage due to its economic prowess and also its international engagement on various fronts, I think there is a very conscious intention from the Chinese side to sort of reshape that narrative and to also be able to claim back some of that Middle Kingdom prominence and Middle Kingdom role that they used to play before that century of humiliation and before everything you know, went south with uh, the encroachment of the Western imperialist powers. And it's interesting, that century of humiliation, because obviously... From my own understanding of, of 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 Chinese culture and history, the fact that China, of course, has a, the Chinese are very proud of their of their of their centuries culture that stretches back more than thousands of years, uh, and their way of life and their civilization, and the fact that now that they are going so past, you know, they're they are rising. I guess one can say from the phoenix, if one tries to be poetic <laughs> and a little bit over dramatic with the description, um, and rightfully in a way taking a spot as in the global arena and or as they feel it their rightful position near the united states i guess what's important to understand is the fact that for the united states equally to understand how china perhaps views them there in the united states there is this consistent uh perception that china looks at the united states with uh ferocious eyes uh, and that wants to simply, that is basically a startup that rose from, from nothing, and this is not taking consideration the centuries of, of civilization that, 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 that forms the Chinese culture, um, which of course, they, and that history that they're quite very proud of, and justifiably, but they tend to look at it, China, as being this, this threat that wants to destroy everything. But from my own personal experience, I've always found it to be quite opposite. I mean, even if we take the Chinese word for the United States, which is Mengguo, which, if I understand correctly, means beautiful country, kingdom. <laughs> so how would it be good to also help the audience understand how does China... Now, one can, you know, maybe it's being asking too much, how does it really think? But generally, how does China diplomatically and just even economically and overall when it comes to the international arena, how do they view the United States? My general sense of how the Chinese people and sort of the political elite as well as the ordinary citizens view the Americans right now, I would say, of course, with all the very difficult challenges with the trade war and also, you know, with this very conscious um, effort by President Biden, to also introduce new policies that aim to counter China's rise, especially um, in the Asia-Pacific region. There's a sense that from at least the Chinese elite level that they would be very cautious, but still have that desire to engage with um, America because it is a relationship that they cannot ignore. It is a relationship uh, that is going to be at the heart of international relations with like a strong impact on everybody in the world. So I think this is probably like how the elites view America, that there's still a certain desire to definitely engage with them, but at the same time, they also have core interests that they would like to stand firm on. And I think 
that sort of a much more assertive stance has been already sort of witnessed in the few cases when it comes to, for example, the more controversial examples of um, Hong Kong and Taiwan. So that, I feel, pretty much would be, in a nutshell, how the Chinese political elites would be looking at America. And interestingly for the citizens, um, I can't really say much for Americans, but recent project that I've been engaged in to look at how the Chinese people look at the Europeans, or rather EU, has actually produced some very interesting findings. Um, I think I should be able to share some of it. In the sense that overall, there's still a lot of goodwill actually expressed um, by the Chinese ordinary citizens towards the EU, uh, which is quite maybe surprising or unsurprising because from the other direction, the Americans have, um, or the Europeans have increasingly been expressing negative sentiments about about China. So I think, you know, when we think about the other direction and how the Chinese people might be responding to this sort of decline in goodwill, for me, it's very interesting. And also, despite the general sense of goodwill that um, the Chinese people feel towards the Europeans, they're also a lot more discerning when it comes to asking them about individual questions about European or the EU's role in international affairs, such as countering um, international terrorism, poverty alleviation, you know, with the environment agenda, for example. And then you start to see people who, the Chinese people who can actually feel a little bit more critical towards um, the EU sort of track record when it comes to these very, very specific areas. So I think this survey that we have conducted has actually revealed some very interesting findings. It's very interesting as well, too, and we would love to actually have more information about that, and hopefully we can make that information available uh, when it is, when it is, we can provide it in the description. It's interesting because I think what's funny is here we are trying to understand China, but we're also doing our having ourselves understand how China is much more multifaceted than one would try to seem. And so I think this is becoming uh, a very good, uh, already, under, uh, I guess, understanding and trying to understand China that it's there, there's more than meets the eye, clearly. But let's go back to the, the initial intention of also this particular episode, which is really understanding China and predominantly around its global intentions. I think... You know, we've talked in regards to how it views uh, the United States. We've talked in regards to its history, but I think we need to really understand in regards to to at least form the basis for the upcoming episodes. Is what is China's intention when it comes to when it's global? What is China, or basically, what does China want to achieve from your understanding uh, within within the global within the global uh, community and within its international engagements? Uh, what are its goals? And, and and how is those are the predominant driving force for what we're seeing now? Okay, when it comes to the goals of um, China, I think it's very important to also look at what are some of the domestic drivers of uh, its foreign policy. So national development in terms of ensuring sustainable economic growth that also involves also having a much better environmental track record, also dealing with issues of inequality. I think all of these actually have a very important role to play when it comes to understanding China's global intentions. Because a lot of the domestic and the foreign policy elements are deeply intertwined. But I would say, by and large, if I want to look at uh, China's global intentions, we can look at it in terms of how it wants to be able to play a much more important role on the global stage 
I would say not necessarily as a leader that would be taking over the position of the US, but I think in some regards to be able to stand on an equal footing. And what this also entails from what a lot of, um, I think, the International Relations Committee has been discussing is articulating an alternative set of values that could drive sort of international engagement. And what I mean by that is sort of values that might come into potential conflict with the existing sort of Western liberal kind of values. So I think that's definitely one of its main goals. And part of its strategy in doing so is to not adopt a confrontational stance at all. Because I think for China, if you really look at its history and its culture, especially, it is always very careful to construct and to use language that emphasizes on harmonious relations that look at common interests. In fact, you know, a lot of that common, uh, very commonly recurring theme right now is to talk about establishing a community of a common destiny for mankind, which is, of course, subject to a lot of interpretations. But what they want to underline and to emphasize is to have shared values, to be able to pursue common interests and to find common grounds among even different nations with very different systems and history and culture so that everybody could come together in this sort of a global international system and be able to mutually benefit you know, the citizens in all these countries. You you highlighted something in that description in regards to global intentions on how its domestic issues have been the real driver for China's international endeavors. And it's making me remember how when I was working within within Sudan, you know, seeing the multiple Chinese workers and the Chinese companies that were engaging, and in in, in simple simple talk with someone who was working with them, an expert, for example, uh, who was coming in from China, was indicating how the, the, the majority of those working within Africa were actually helping relieve a key domestic issue that China was having, and that was finding employment for those that work in rural areas. And, that, and that's just reminding me, particularly that discussion and how I found it very interesting. From that aspect, could we talk a little bit more about what are the key domestic issues that China sees as a priority uh, and that can maybe help uh, enlighten the listener to really get an idea in regards to how this could actually, or not how this could, but how these are actually contributing towards China's intentions globally? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in terms of where is domestic priorities are right now, they're mainly pretty much steeped in economic concerns, right? Because, you know, this very phenomenal Chinese story of um, double-digit economic growth has become, has faced or encountered a reality check where they are now acknowledging a new normal of less than uh, 10% economic growth, the GDP. And I think one very important aspect of, of it is the need to look for new drivers of economic growth which means that the old formula of investing heavily in infrastructure will not be feasible anymore. So China's sort of a past glory as the factory of the world in terms of its manufacturing capabilities are also quite uh, under siege right now. If you think about how it is also becoming increasingly expensive due to the rising labor costs. In fact, I think um, some of the Southeast Asian countries are proving to be able to provide much cheaper labor with you know, sort of the factories being moved to countries like Vietnam. So I think that one very classic example of how all these domestic interests and issues 
become intertwined with the foreign policy would be through the Belt and Road Initiative. So sorry if I'm like preempting you a little bit here because you can see a lot of um, the Belt and Road Initiative projects which involve infrastructure kind of following this logic that infrastructural development in China will be slowing down so they need to be able to think about how else can they continue to sort of grow and engender economic growth. So a lot of these projects and a lot of the SOEs um, that could be involved in these projects like overseas um, will be, can be seen as an attempt to sort of uh, bridge these two areas together. I mean, Sue, already, already just talking about this aspect of domestic issues influencing international um, motivations, it feels like that should be its own episode, its own right. And in fact, I think I may look into that for the future. But to be able to conclude this episode, I mean, I think the key thing and takeaway one can get from this episode is that there is so much to China that meets the eye. And because of perhaps automatic assumptions one is making about China, it's leading to the never-ending list of misunderstandings that many countries are having around this very complex um, uh, very complex uh, actor within the international arena. Uh, that being said, I wanted to ask, you know, as a final question, what are the, what are the key assumptions that one is having around China, which is which is completely sadly fictitious. Um, but how can one, particularly the listeners, really empower themselves more to really, apart from listening to all of our upcoming episodes on this series on China, but how can they really empower themselves to really remove those assumptions and really work towards understanding this complex country? Oof, that is a very tough question, but at the same time, um, very interesting to reflect on. So I think um, one of the key assumptions about China that probably many of us make is to not be able to read between the lines and to go between the different layers. And this can sort of um, happen in many different regards, right? So I think there's always a propensity to see what is happening at the very, very top level and just assume that everything is gloom and doom without really considering that there are other levels at work that you know you have. For example, businesses, for example, maybe even for some other areas of cooperation which are still possible. So just because relations at the government-to-government level might seem a little bit tenuous does not mean that, you know, there are still, um, there are no other areas or opportunities for cooperation. And I think the reason why I wanted to bring up this point is because in my own research and in my own engagement with China, I often find that it's not very consistent when it comes to sort of reading what has been reported in the news, even coming from very credible sources. And my own experiences of being able to perceive continued desire and enthusiasm to continue engaging with the West. So for all the bad press that China has been getting about, you know, its increasingly aggressive behavior, I also still find and it's, that it's very difficult to work with them. I still see a continued desire and intention to engage with different partners through different channels, even if they're not at a very visible sort of a governmental level. So I guess that's one key assumption I would like to sort of put out there for people to really consider and to think about. That's interesting. And then perhaps in a way, how can they be able to empower themselves a little bit more to really educate themselves, again, beyond uh, listening to this episode, this podcast, what can they do to educate themselves a little bit more about 
about China in a more holistic way, let's say for considering its diplomatic and international intentions? Okay, that's such a, a great question, especially to end off. I think as a key suggestion, I would just suggest something really simple, which is to actually try to talk to different Chinese people. And I don't mean people who are engaged in sort of high-level politics or diplomacy or even like in developmental work, but just any ordinary Chinese person that you can sort of come across. Ideally, I would like to say to go to China, which is clearly quite impossible at this um, current time. But just to be able to talk to different people, to get different perspectives and to get a sense of what kind of diversity that exists in also the mindset, which will help to broaden one's understanding of, of China, I think. Uh, of course, that comes from the perspective of me being a qualitative social science uh, researcher, but I find that I personally have benefited a lot from talking to different Chinese people that helps me to develop and formulate a much more nuanced perspective that helps me to get out of a lot of the polarized um, debates that have been presented, not just in the mass media, but also in a lot of um, the academic journals and academic discussions. So at the end of the day, that's probably like something that is quite doable. I would think. It's quite doable, and I think that's the homework assignment for any diplomat or anybody who's engaging in another country. It's not always the technocrats and always the experts that can be able to provide the answer you're looking for, but just the everyday person. So that was that was excellent. Thank you very much, Sue. And thank you for your time on the Global Podcast. You have really provided a lot of good foundational, I guess, insight that was going to allow help really open the doors for the subsequent episode. So Thank you very much for coming on the Global Podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Global Podcast. I'm Jesu Antonio Baez, Director of Pax Tech and Global Consultancy, which produces this series. Please do check out our website at www.paxtechandglobal.org. That's P-A-X-T-E-C-U-M-G-L-O-B-A-L.org to discover more about our work. You can also follow this podcast and the work of PAX on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and of course subscribe on both Spotify and Apple Podcast. Join us next week for another edition, and until next time, grazie e ci sentiamo presto. Ciao!